All right. We hope you enjoyed that. We certainly did. We've got about 15 minutes left in the program, so let us do what we like to do. Starting with our favorite ongoing feature, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. magazine it was a good week last week for political correctness with the news that the owner of a British hair salon was temporarily blocked from publishing a help wanted ad seeking a happy stylist because the posting discriminated against unhappy people. Alison Birch said she initially thought the complaint by the Department for Work and Pensions was a joke before realizing it was serious. A department spokesperson has since apologized, but Birch says she's too unnerved by the incident to repost. She said, I only want happy people, but I'm too scared to advertise my job now in case I discriminate against anybody. was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for creativity after Daniel Snyder, owner of the NFL team, formerly known as the Washington Redskins, said the current placeholder name, the Washington football team, may become permanent if, quote, the name catches on and our fans embrace it, unquote. Good God. Reminds us of a scene from that memorable movie, Repo Man, where Emilio Estevez's character goes home and takes out from the pantry of his parents a can labeled food. Food's glorious food. What is it more handsome? Don't swallow or chew. Still worth the king's ransom. What is it we dream about? What brings on a side? Pile peaches and cream and melt. Six feet high. Food's glorious And we'd have to say it was an ugly week last week for useful idiots with the word that after former Ukrainian parliamentarian Andrei Derkach, who had been feeding dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden to Ruli Giuliani, was identified by the U.S. Treasury Department as an active Russian agent. Said Giuliani, there's nothing I saw that said he was a Russian agent. Well, we're willing to bet that he probably wasn't wearing, say, a Russian general's uniform when he met with Giuliani. And he probably didn't have stainless steel teeth like the character Jaws in the James Bond movies. But we are pretty sure that Rudy Giuliani is not going to land a post in counterintelligence over at the CIA. That's our guess. Unless, of course, as Mr. Miller points out, Trump appoints him to that post. Which, we have to admit, is a possibility. And finally, it was both a bad and ugly week, we would have to say, for what we would, I guess, describe as overzealous vigilance. Turns out a 12-year-old Colorado boy was suspended from school and visited by police after his teacher spotted a toy gun in his home during an online class. Evidently, Isaiah Elliott's plastic gun is neon green 
Yet his teacher reported him to the school principal, who in turn suspended him and called the police. Said the boy's father, Curtis Elliott, he was in tears when the cops came, adding, we were all scared. Is that the best musical bed you could find in Mr. Villain? The Peter Gunn theme? That's a lot of pressure. I don't want the cops to come visit. Now, in the time we have left on today's program, we're desperate to talk about something else besides deadly contagion and foolish leadership. But doggone it, I reach for our stack of usual contributing magazines and find Smithsonian. And its cover story is that Nero is getting a makeover. And to my mind, somehow we've circled back into bad leadership. In this case, the first century A.D., not the 21st century A.D. The story focuses in on how the great palace that Nero built, the Domus Aurea, is now almost all gone, but it's not completely gone. In fact, there's a section of it that later emperors filled in with dirt to build on top of that they are now excavating, and they're making some interesting findings. Beneath the baths that the emperor Trajan built on top of Nero's works, There's apparently some very interesting architecture. The archaeologist in charge of the excavation, Alessandro D'Alessio, is finding things to admire in the architecture and is trying to claim that this reflects well on on Nero. Said D'Alessio, the church chose Nero as the representation of evil, but if you see what he made here, you get a completely different idea. Well, maybe so. But a guy who arranged the murder of his own mother... Well, that's a guy that's hard to rehabilitate. We last talked a bit about Nero with author Barry Strauss when we discussed his fine book, Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine, which frankly I feel like quoting from just a little bit. There was a rumor back when Nero reigned that he sang while the city burned. Barry Strauss noted that Nero had given public performances of singing, so the story of his performing while Rome blazed is plausible, if not proven. Said Strauss, the great fire of Rome took only one week of Nero's many years in power, but it defines his reign in both real and symbolic terms. The fire opened the way for a new city of Rome and a new age in Roman building, and it left its mark on Roman culture as well as on Roman civilization. He notes Nero was a master of manipulating symbols such as fire, so there's something appropriate about the attention it gets in history. But he adds there's something also misleading. Before the fire, Nero was wildly popular with the Roman people. They doubted him afterwards. I guess I could be forgiven of thinking of the comparisons between the disasters of a fire and that of a pandemic. The Roman public turned against Nero in the first instance, but the American public, at least a significant segment, has not yet done so when it comes to Donald J. Trump. Now, Nero's the kind of guy that arranged for his mother to be drowned. He had had a boat constructed that would collapse and supposedly kill her in the process, but when the boat collapsed, she was apparently a pretty good swimmer and made it back to shore. My understanding is that Nero was then able to greet her with, with a sort of, thank God you're safe, mother sort of ceremony. Frustrated, he finally just sent soldiers to kill her. Supposedly when they arrived on the scene, Agrippina took one look at him and said, pointing at her uterus, strike here first, that bore Nero. But doggone it, who knows? Maybe 2,000 years from now, 
someone will be looking back at the legacy of Donald J. Trump and attempting to do a makeover. We're getting a little far afield here, but that's what we do sometimes in the program. We like to think that's uh, what you find charming about us. Seldom a week goes by when we do not rely upon The Economist to produce this program, and we're going to close today by doing that yet again. Two people we would have loved to have interviewed on this program are Isaac Asimov and Richard Feynman. Both unfortunately died long before there was this program. Mr. Wynn likes to think they would have both jumped at the chance to have appeared on this program. I hope he's right. But doggone it, it appears we did have a shot at Joan Feynman, Richard's younger sister. That will never to be because her obituary appears in the current issue of The Economist. One of The Economist likes to be rather florid sometimes when it does its obituaries. This is no exception. But I think it's a pretty good read and I would like to quote from it. Under the headline, Joan Feynman, astrophysicist, died on July 22nd at age 93. Note of the magazine, in the dusty Spanish town of Torcedillas in 1494, Spain and Portugal divided the unclaimed world between them. The moment is famous. Less well known is that around 1963, Joan Feynman at Columbia and Richard Feynman at Caltech divided up the universe. She took auroras, the northern and southern lights that shimmer through our night sky in the highest latitudes, and he, nine years older and fast becoming a world star in physics, took all the rest, which was fine with her. The arrangement was serious. When many years later, Richard was asked to look into auroras, he said he would have to ask Joan's permission. She said no. They were hers, and besides, he'd started the fascination. One night when she was small, he dragged her out of bed, made her get dressed, and took her to the golf course in Far Rockway near the house. Auroras did not normally come down to lower latitudes, but here was one. As she stared at the sky that was dancing with red, gold, and green lights, he told her that no one knew how they happened, which was true back then. The mystery with the lights lodged in her head for good. After years of looking into it, she found the answer. Auroras happened when particles from the solar wind, the stream of free electrons and heavy ions flowing out of the sun, penetrated the magnetosphere that protected our Earth. The magnetic fields of the Earth and the solar wind, bound in different directions, intersected. The colors were caused by solar particles colliding with oxygen and nitrogen in the Earth's upper atmosphere. The comparison is often made to a fluorescent light bulb. Her studies expanded, fueled by data sent back by Explorer 33 in 1966, to cover as much as possible the sun's behavior, its 11-year sunspot cycle, its 88-year Gleisberg cycles, its strange peaks and troughs of activity. Most usefully for the space age, she found that coronal mass ejections could be detected by the presence of helium in the solar wind. They also came in groups. If these storms could, to some extent, be predicted, spacecraft could be designed to resist them better. In short, that night walk in childhood had led her to a lifetime of considering the interplay between the Earth and its giant, vital, fluctuating star. A star it faced with its magnetosphere flattened on the day side like a shield, while on the night side relaxed with a wide, long, open tail. That shape, too she had discovered. And yet she might never have done any of this work, 
At every turn, people tried to pull her off science as a career. Women couldn't do it, her mother said. Their brains were too feeble. At Syracuse University, where her thesis was on the absorption of infrared radiation in crystals, she was told to write one on cobwebs, a more useful topic for cleaning her house. When she tried after graduating to place an ad in the New York Times for a research job, she was told only men could do so. In the men's section, marriage and children therefore seemed inevitable as well as desirable. But full-time heiswalfery but full-time housewifery drove her to misery and then depression. Science was her life. One person who had always encouraged her was Richard. Although she constantly doubted herself, ready to shrink into some background role, he told her to aim for the top. As soon as she could talk, he had challenged her with sums and made her assistant in his bedroom laboratory to throw switches and hold her fingers in a spark gap to feel the little shock. Bringing her water one night, he would whirl the glass around to show the magic of centrifugal force. On her 14th birthday, feeding her fascination with the night sky, he gave her a college textbook on astronomy. It was hard going, but on page 407 came a revelation as good as the aurora, or almost. Below the figure of a spectrum was a reference to work by Cecilia Payne Gapachkin on stellar atmospheres. A woman... A married woman at that, doing science. So the world was not closed to her. It could open. She just had to persist. And for over 60 years, she did. From 1985, working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, she studied observations of auroras from ancient China and medieval Europe. She consulted records kept methodically for centuries on water levels in the Nile to trace the impact of the sun on climate in North Africa. To those who asked why in her late 80s she went on researching, her answer was partly that she still had plenty of questions. How, for example, did the sun end up with a cycle of 88 years? And why did it act in the unexpected ways that it did? The beauty of auroras was beguiling. But with one extra high-speed ejection, as it had shown from time to time, the sun could disable Earth's communications. It was an important thing to study, and that all went back to that night on a golf course in Far Rockaway, when her brother Richard told her that no one knew how the auroras happened. Anyway, Joan Feynman, we salute you and we apologize to you posthumously. That does it for time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who has retained his fear that coronal mass injections could yet interrupt radio communications, such as those of Radio Parallax. Our thanks again to author Stephen J. Harper. We remind you that his timelines on BillMoyers.com are worth checking out. Mr. Millen and I are both delighted to have learned that when Stephen Harper reminded Bill Moyers that he had appeared on our program many years ago, he vaguely remembered it and thought we were okay. And yes, we'll take a vague remembrance from Bill Moyers 16 years ago. Mr. Mill wanted to add that he remembers it. He thought Bill Moyers was okay. Actually, we still think he is great. 
really a national treasure. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.